Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's lovely to see you and a very warm welcome to every single one of you. It's, it's lovely to see the church so full this morning. And it's that time of year where um, a number of our brothers uh, who are studying finish their exams and head back off to their families. And I think during this week we say farewell to Elijah and to Steve, both heading back to Kenya on Friday. I think they, as soon as they put down their pens, they rush out of the exam room, hail a taxi and dash off to the airport. Uh, So do remember them in your prayers. They'll be back with us mid-January, but we'll certainly miss them and do please pray for them while they're away. Good. Well, it'll be a great help to me this morning in this, I think, very important passage. If you please keep the Bible open in front of you, and also the outline that I've provided for you on the inside of the white bulletin. I think if you can juggle both those two things, you will find it helpful. And uh, before we begin, let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the enormous privilege of an open Bible. Uh, We remember this morning those many countries around the world where an open Bible is a sheer impossibility. So it is a great privilege. Help us, Lord, not to squander it. Give us listening ears, submissive hearts, and change us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Um, A couple of years ago, a team of Bible translators were working in Brazil. Uh, They'd been translating the Gospel of Luke, the book that we're studying at the moment, into one of the local dialects. And uh, they were starting to record the soundtrack for the Jesus film. When they got to the story of Zacchaeus, the passage that we're looking at this morning, the uh, only man who was available to read the part happened to be a notorious cheat. He was well known in the community as someone who was always looking to make a profit at the expense of other people. And uh, when it got to the part of the story where he had to say the words, I cheated, he actually couldn't do it. The best he could manage was to say, he cheated. Uh, And it actually took the producers a number of hours before they could get this man to say the words, I cheated. When the film was released, the whole village pitched up to watch it. Every eye was glued to the screen. And if you've seen the Jesus film, you'll know that towards the end, uh, there's a scene where Jesus is carrying the cross to Calvary. And uh, the voiceover talks about the price that he paid there for our sins. And at that moment this well-known cheat, this rogue, this scoundrel, he began to weep. And the tears poured down his face. To everyone's surprise, he became a Christian. And from that day, he left his old life behind. He became a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. More about him in a moment. Now, our key verse for the next few minutes is the last sentence in the passage. I wonder if you can see it. In verse 10, Jesus is talking about himself. And he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. 
It's not only uh, our key verse for this passage, it's actually one of the key verses in the whole Gospel. Because it tells us, in language that all of us can understand, why Jesus came into the world at Christmas. And it's not what most people think. Many people say that Jesus was a marvellous teacher and he came into the world to teach us things we wouldn't know otherwise. Others say that Jesus was a marvellous moral example and uh, he came into the world to show us how to live. And other people say that, uh, well, Jesus was a great healer and he came into the world to make sick people better. Now, of course, Jesus was all of those things. But Jesus says that they aren't actually the main reason that he came. Now, the main reason that Jesus came into the world was to seek and to save the lost. Whatever does that mean? Well, sooner or later, children in Sunday school are taught the three tenses of salvation. That salvation has a past tense, it has a present tense, and it has a future tense. The past tense of salvation means that because of the death of Jesus, we can be saved from the penalty of sin. So, uh, if you are already a Christian here this morning, then from that moment in the past when you first trusted in Christ, you were saved from God's righteous condemnation. From that very moment, you became a child of God and from then on, you have been able to call God Father. Then there is a present tense of salvation, which means that because of Jesus, we can be saved from the power of sin. If you're a Christian, that means that sin no longer controls your life in the way that it used to. That doesn't, of course, mean that you're perfect, None of us are. But sin no longer has the last word. You have been set free to serve God and his cause. And thirdly, there is a future tense of salvation, which is God's promise to save us from the presence of sin. Now today, of course, the presence of sin is all around us, isn't it? In broken relationships, in sickness and in death. But God has promised that one day the Lord Jesus is coming back and when he does he's going to bring God's children into a new world where all of those terrible things will be gone forever. So salvation is a wonderful thing. Jesus says it's the reason he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, and in our passage this morning, Luke has given us a very surprising example to show us just how wonderful it is. Now why do I say that it's surprising? Two reasons. First, 
It's the story of a surprising seeker. You see, Zacchaeus was a well-known cheat. Uh, Just look at the middle of verse 8, if you will. Zacchaeus says there, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, that actually is a rather weak translation because there is no if about it. The better commentaries tell us that actually only a paraphrase will capture the full impact of the original language. So a more accurate reading would be, if I have, and I certainly have, cheated people, da-da-da-da-da-da. You see, in verse 2, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Now, some of you know that in those days, tax collectors were not the respectable civil servants that they are today. No, tax collecting was a form of institutionalised corruption. And as a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus was in a class of his own. In fact, he's the only chief tax collector in the whole of the Bible. So here we have a first-class cheat. Now, of course, today, uh, cheating, sadly, is not all that unusual. It's everywhere. Men cheat their wives, they cheat their colleagues, they cheat their customers, they cheat the taxman, they cheat their rivals in sport, and, of course, women are not immune from cheating either. In fact, dare I say it, there's probably not a single person in this building this morning, including myself, who could honestly say that they've never cheated anybody out of anything. But I think that the reason that Luke includes the story of Zacchaeus in his book is because he was a notable cheat and he met Jesus Christ. The second thing to notice is that this is the story of a surprising salvation, a surprising cheat, but a surprising salvation. I say that because if you glance back to chapter 18 and verse 24, you'll notice that Jesus has just said something very remarkable indeed. Verse 24, Jesus says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And now, here at the beginning of chapter 19, we meet Zacchaeus. And in verse 2, Luke tells us that he is rich. So, according to the Lord Jesus himself, Zacchaeus is a hopeless case. He has no chance whatsoever of getting right with God by his own efforts. If he's going to be saved, only God can do it. And yet, of course, that is precisely what happens, isn't it? Because in verse 9, Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house. So yes, this is a story of a surprising salvation. 
And of course, the people in Jericho, well, they really were surprised, weren't they? After all, they they knew exactly what Zacchaeus was like. But they were actually more than surprised. Because in verse 7, Luke tells us that the people began to mutter. That means they were outraged. They were disgusted. The people were shocked that such a well-known cheat was turning to Christ and Christ was apparently accepting him. They were sceptical. And of course, it's just the same today. Think of uh, Hans de Cronier for a moment. For years, he was admired, wasn't he, as an outstanding cricketer and uh, the captain of the national team. But then he was accused of match-fixing and uh, overnight the national hero was exposed as a cheat. It was a very sad story and of course you know that tragically later on he was killed in a plane crash. But I mention him because before he died, Hansi recommitted his life to Jesus Christ. But the people muttered. They were sceptical. They didn't believe it. And the question that they asked about Hansi then was exactly the same question they were asking about Zacchaeus in our passage this morning. Was his conversion genuine? Was Zacchaeus the real deal? Sudden conversions, of course, often are not. So it is a good question to ask. Well, we know, don't we, that Luke has very carefully investigated everything in his book. We also know that he was writing all of this many, many years after the events that he recorded, perhaps as many as 30 years later. So we can be absolutely sure that what we have here is something very genuine. So, taking the ten verses, which is, after all, all we've got to go on, taking these ten verses that Brenda read for us, can we spot any telltale signs of real spiritual life? Signs that will not only prove the genuineness of Zacchaeus' conversion, but will help you and me recognise genuine Christian conversion today. Well, there are three that come straight off the surface of the story. Three telltale signs of real conversion that are as relevant today as ever. And the first sign that the conversion of Zacchaeus was genuine is that he made a serious investigation. A serious investigation. Come with me to verse 3. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. You see, Zacchaeus was willing to risk his dignity in order to discover what Jesus was all about. In that culture, (coughs) no respectable man ever ran anywhere. And let me ask you, when was the last time you saw an inspector of taxes climbing a tree? But Zacchaeus 
was also willing to risk public criticism by doing these things. Now, over the years, I've seen a number of businessmen brought to the City Partnership, the midweek meeting we have for uh, people in the city, down in the City Bowl. Now, in the office, these men might be very senior, they might be very successful, they might be right at the top of their profession. But very often, as soon as the Bible is opened and we begin to explain it, these fearless businessmen suddenly look like startled rabbits. Now, there are plenty of people like that. Many of us were like that when we first heard the Gospel. It frightened us. We were alarmed. We wanted to turn away and run in the opposite direction. Young people do that. Old people do it as well. So, what made Zacchaeus so very determined? Is there a clue as to why Zacchaeus was willing to come out into the open and see for himself? Because he was taking a bit of a risk. Well, as I was preparing, I came across something that I'd never seen before in Luke's Gospel. And that is that there are six references to tax collectors in Luke. And what is so very surprising is that all of them are favourable. So I'd like you please to take your Bible in your hand and do a very quick survey with me. First of all, please turn to chapter 3, verse 12, on page 724. Chapter 3, verse 12, page 724. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. Verse 12, chapter 3. Tax collectors also came to be baptised by John. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? You see, these corrupt men, they want to get right with God. And John says, don't collect any more than you're required to. Turn on to chapter 5, verse 27, page 727. Chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Turn on to chapter 7, verse 29, page 729. Chapter 7, verse 29. This is a rather lovely one, I think. Um, Luke writes this, verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, do you like that? Luke is rather surprised, isn't he, that even they are doing this. Uh, um, when they heard Jesus' words, even the tax collectors acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptised by John. Chapter 15, verse 1, page 738 you know this, I think. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And it goes on to say that the religious types were not. 
And then most famous of all, you don't need to turn to it, but in chapter 18 and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you remember that it was the tax collector and not the smug Pharisee who beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We'll come back to chapter 19. Let me ask you, have you noticed this pattern for yourself? I don't know whether you have. But it does seem to me that these six references, including the one in our passage this morning, are sufficiently remarkable to make us ask this question. Was this perhaps the underlying reason why Zacchaeus started to look? Was it perhaps that he had noticed a change in some of his friends and colleagues? And I think that is a good question to ask because comparatively few people are converted in the first instance by a sermon. Now the beginning of their search is usually because they see a friend or a neighbour whose life has changed. And it's a great thing when people who've never shown any interest in these things before begin to investigate for themselves. It's actually rather unusual. But when it does happen, they start to read, they start to ask questions, uh, they begin to come to church, even though the rest of the family would really rather that they didn't. Yes, if somebody begins to make a determined effort to discover the truth about Jesus and they start to realise just how ignorant they are about these things, it is a very encouraging sign. More than that, it's a very significant sign. Because, you see, when a man or a woman starts to seek after God, the Bible says it's a sign that God is seeking after them. That's actually the message of verse 10, isn't it? This story is showing us that long before Zacchaeus began to look for Jesus, Jesus had been looking for him. I began a moment ago by mentioning the cheat who played the part of Zacchaeus in the Jesus film and who was eventually converted. And I want to suggest to you that when that man first got involved in the making of the film, Jesus was already seeking him. That actually was Jesus inviting himself into that man's life. The man didn't know it, of course, uh, any more than we did when Jesus first came into our lives. But some of us here this morning are so very thankful, aren't we, that in the past, Jesus came looking for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here this morning and our lives would have gone off in a totally different direction. So that's the first telltale sign. It may not sound like very much to you and it's certainly not as dramatic as Paul's encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. But it is a very striking and significant thing when somebody who has always dismissed these things before 
begins to take the gospel seriously and starts a serious investigation. The second telltale sign of genuine conversion is when someone makes a right response. And you'll find this in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, of course, that kind of response is totally outside our control. Uh, We can pray, we can preach, we can run courses like Christianity Explored, but only the Spirit of God can bring the message of salvation home directly to the individual heart and mind. You and I cannot do that. Only the Spirit of God can motivate the right response. So I'm rather intrigued by verse 6, which seems to me to be saying something vitally important. Verse 6 says that the mark of a genuine response that is actually motivated by the Holy Spirit is two things. First of all, it is immediate, at once, and second, it is glad, not regretful. So think of the first of these, an immediate response. Uh, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, come down immediately, so he came down at once. Now you see, what is happening here is that all of those absurd excuses that we've heard and we may well have given ourselves have completely disappeared. Jesus himself must have heard these excuses many times, How else could he have told the story of the great banquet? You know know the story well, I'm sure. You remember that all the invitations were sent out and almost immediately the excuses began to pour in. I've just bought a field. I must go and look at it. Uh, I've just got married. I can't possibly come. I've just bought a new car. I must go and take it for a test drive. Please excuse me. Now, I assume that that story echoes the fact that our Lord heard many of these painful and, frankly, empty excuses many times during his earthly ministry. So here, the sign that God is at work is when people hear the voice of Christ, genuinely hear that voice as speaking to them, and they respond immediately. Second, there is a glad response. There's no reluctance in it. Now I know perfectly well that someone will say at that point, but hold on Simon, didn't Jesus warn us against the immediate joy of someone who hears the gospel and makes an over-hasty commitment without thinking it through? And the answer is, actually yes he did but we need to remind ourselves of the context. So page back to Luke chapter 8 on page 730. Keep one finger in chapter 19 
But come back to Luke 8, page 730. This is the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught. And it's famous because Jesus gives us such a clear and very realistic picture of what actually happens every time the word of God is preached. You remember that Jesus compares the word of God to the seed that a farmer sows in a field. And the seed falls on four different kinds of ground with four very different results. And then Jesus explains the meaning. Now this morning, we're only concerned with the seed that fell on rocky ground in verse 13. Who are these people? Well, Jesus tells us. Jesus says, Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Now, of course, this can happen to anybody, can't it, at any age. They come to church, they hear the word, and they say, marvellous, I've been waiting for a word like this all my life. I want to join the church immediately. Where's the people's warden? But then, a few months later, some test or some trial comes along and they fall away. So their response, you see, wasn't the real thing. And the point is that the test proves whether there is a root or not. What is this root? Well, one part of it is counting the cost. You see, it's when people respond to the gospel without counting the cost, without realising that when Jesus comes into a person's life, he comes not only as Saviour, but as Lord. They haven't counted the cost, they have no root. And so the person in verse 13 hasn't considered the fact that when Jesus enters his head and his heart, everything is going to change. And because he didn't think about that, when trouble comes, he falls away. So please come back to Luke 19 as we look for the third telltale sign of genuine Christian conversion. The first is that Zacchaeus began a serious investigation and I do want to emphasise to you this morning that that is a very, very significant sign. The second is that when he heard the voice of the Good Shepherd, when he heard the voice of God speaking personally to him, to his heart, the immediate response, the glad response, no procrastination, no excuses. And the third telltale sign is a visible repentance. And you'll find that in verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So you see, here we have a man who counted the cost 
of becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, this is specific to him. Um, I don't imagine there's anybody in this church this morning who's got to go out and repay people four times. Now, it's a story of a very particular person. And repentance takes different forms in different people. But the principle will, is that repentance will always take some kind of visible and outward form. People can see it. And to help us think about what that might mean for you and for me, I've given you a brief quotation on the reverse of the green question sheet. Uh, you might like to just look at it. This came from one of the better commentaries. Um, you students, if you're looking for a good commentary on Luke, Philip Riken is your man, and this is what he had to say. True repentance means turning away from sin and towards godliness in every area of life. Where you've been taking what does not belong to you, pay it back with extra. Where you've been lazy, get back to work and serve in the strength of the Lord. Where you've been neglecting your family, reorganise your schedule and spend time doing the things your spouse and your children most need you to do. Where you've been giving in to sexual sin, protect your purity by making a commitment to chastity. Where you've been living selfishly, learn to serve. Where you've been tearing people down, build them up. Where you've been angry with people or bitter against God, offer forgiveness and praise. Now, of course, that's not a comprehensive list. You'll be able to think of other examples yourself. But you see, this is what Zacchaeus is doing, isn't it, in verse 8. And while the cynics in Jericho were standing on the pavement muttering and questioning whether Zacchaeus really was the genuine article, Jesus has the last word in verse 9. And quite frankly, his is the only opinion that counts. Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house. This man who was a cheat is now a son of Abraham, a genuine disciple. Someone who's been brought into all the promises of God. He is the real thing. And if Jesus says so, well, it is so. Before we close, please will you notice that word today. It comes twice in the passage, once in verse 5 and again in verse 9. In verse 5, Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. Now, my dear friends, that is always the message of the Bible. It's never, I must stay at your house tomorrow. Because in these matters, tomorrow never comes. Many people come to church and uh, they're challenged, not by human words, not by the words of a man, but challenged by the word of God. And yet they do nothing about it today. I don't know what that word might be for you, but when Jesus speaks, 
it is always today. And please notice what Jesus actually says in verse 9. Today salvation has come to this house. There's no question about it. It's a great word of assurance. And of course, uh, it's the same word that Jesus gave to the thief on the cross. He was another rogue, wasn't he? And yet Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the cynic, of course, can't believe that, but we don't have to listen to him because he knows absolutely nothing about these things. So, friends, let's be on the lookout for these great and very important signs. It may be this morning that I'm talking to somebody who's already started the journey. They've begun to search. They've started to ask questions. Well, if that's you, keep at it. Don't be put off. Or it may be that you've just begun to hear the voice of God through the preaching of God's word or through personal Bible reading speaking to you. Now, my friend, if that is you, then let me tell you, if you're hearing that voice, you must respond immediately and gladly. Today. And if you do so, and if you will follow your conscience, if you will put right those things that God has told you in your conscience to put right, then you will get that word of assurance from God that we find in this passage on the lips of Jesus. Today, salvation has come to this house. And let me tell you, it is a very wonderful thing when God, by his Spirit, breathes into our hearts the assurance that Today, there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Today, I must stay at your house today. Our Heavenly Father, how mysterious these things are. But many of us this morning can recall and be thankful for that first day when you spoke to us, when you woke us up, when you knocked at the door. And we pray that today, some in this building may hear your voice and respond at once and gladly. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.